tuning into the top rank podcast this is marcel and this is isabel this is our 20th podcast which is like kind of crazy to think about yeah it's still i, I feel like we just started and i always tell people that i just started a podcast and they're like what <laughs> <laughs> just started well cont- i mean still started continuing to learn i mean it's been a fun journey and i feel like you know we've done 20 episodes well no i mean I guess 19 episodes which is kind of crazy to think about but we somehow managed to keep our own selves kind of in the background. I mean, I think that the topics that we cover are very much us and reflective of our relationship and our friendship, but I feel like it could be cool for us to share a bit about more about who we are and how the story of the podcast came to be and more stuff like that. Yeah, so this is an episode by us about us, <laughs> which we were both didn't want to do because we were really shy. Well, here but we're goes. going to anyway. Okay. Um, so we thought that we would start this by explaining why we do this podcast and how we know each other. Yeah. Um, so Marcel, do you want to kick us off? <laughs> sure. Um, oh my gosh, how this started. Well, I, maybe you can talk about how I first met you, which was in the college days, which I guess weren't too, too far away from I these guess days like five right years now. ago. Can I disclose what Age university reveal? you went to? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Private information. Yeah. So, I so I met Isabel at Princeton and I spent a lot of time there um, on the weekends. My partner and, yeah, you lived together. And while you kind of made yourself scarce, as you usually do, doing your own thing, being fiercely independent, I remember there was this one time in the kitchen where you were, like, just talking shit about something in this, like, a very, like, snappy <laughs> way. And I was like, I'm going to be friends with her one day. Like, she's never around, but she's very great. <laughs> And then, I don't, how did we get connected? Was it through top the Top Rank magazine stuff? Like, how did we actually... I, I mean, remember. okay, here's the way I remember it. So, just to clarify, Marcel's partner went to the same u- university as me, and we were roommates in an apartment, and we both, like, didn't really fuck with the school. Sorry, Michael. At all. Um, and at all, and kind of kept to ourselves. So, Marcel would visit, and we would, like, see each other and talk, but never really got to hang out. But definitely shared... Um, a lot of sentiments I think that we both understood that and like and like generally a worldview and so then one time after leaving school when I was in New York and and you were also we ran into each other in Penn Station oh that's right yeah (coughs) and that that kind of like reconnected us being in touch and then you had the opportunity to do this podcast for a magazine at the time called Top Rank and you invited me to do it with you. I'm also really shy and, and had never public spoken on anything other than giving a, a speech in Spanish at my eighth grade graduation. <laughs> Whoa, I didn't know and about that. So I was really, 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 really scared about the potential of doing it. But because I loved Marcel so much already, I said yes. Oh, thank God. Yeah, no, I remember we were in Grey Dog eating French fries, I remember. I mean, just a little bit about <coughs> Top Rank. So Top Rank was a magazine founded in uh, two, 2014 by a good friend of mine, Alice Grandois. Shout out to Alice. Uh, I know you'll be listening to this. So, hey, so she had this great idea. We had met at work. We both used to work at Red Bull, and she had this amazing idea to develop a print publication, just really highlighting women of diverse background, women identify people with diverse backgrounds, 
um, doing really compelling things in the arts and academia and fashion and film. So we worked on the first iteration of that magazine, which was like a great success. And Alice, it was actually Alice's idea to start the podcast um, to kind of keep the brand alive, keep the magazine alive in between issues. Um, and she asked me to do it. And at first I was like, oh God, shit. Like, even though I have experience like filmmaking and took a radio class yeah, you in have college, so much preparation I was just this. like, what? I was like, okay. And at, at the Red Bull job, I like helped with the podcast, um, booth too. So I was kind of like, okay, whatever. Just push yourself into the discomfort zone and do it. And we couldn't really find, I really wanted a co-host and couldn't really find, think of anyone that I would have like a chemistry with that had, you know, like interests <coughs> and all that stuff and then yeah we were just getting together talking about nameplates yes at gray dog over french fries and how we just wanted to start do a project about nameplates we had no idea like what it was going to be we thought it was going to be like a photography project like an exhibition like we had all these like random ideas but we knew we loved nameplate jewelry and wanted to do something about it and then the just light bulb went into my head i was like whoa we should totally make a podcast about this and like you're we're the perfect team to do it and then boom that's was yeah. our first podcast episode ever that is exactly how it happened i mean i feel like this is a good segue into the into a question i was going to ask you mm. we prepared some questions for each other about things that we've wanted to know about each other but maybe haven't had a chance to talk about so speaking of nameplates which is something that marcel and i both grew up around and with and really really love and we're like hell-bent on doing something with them even even if it hadn't been the podcast itself um marcel is from brooklyn yeah and obviously being <laughs> sorry 27 years old <laughs> wow. we're both turning 28 in, in like two weeks I know. but Shit. um a lot has changed in the past 28 years in brooklyn undoubtedly so i just i i've always wondered like what when you're kind of like home since you're living in the same place that you've always lived uh and aside I'm, i've moved a ton my whole life so i don't have like a home place what has stayed the same about Brooklyn to you or like, I mean, obviously I don't really need to ask you what changed cause that's pretty obvious, but like what anchors it to you as something which feels like home? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I think there's always just, I think, I think this is probably shared for anyone who comes from a certain place and has lived there all their life. You know, it's like the feeling of being grounded and knowing that you know how to get anywhere. This feeling of like, you kind of have control over your own destiny in a way for me that's what always maintains sometimes i'm in cabs and i'm driving along in areas neighborhoods that i really know well i'm like wow i could never be lost here because i know exactly where i am like i have people in close proximity that could help me and yeah always that feeling of home this is a super cheesy story but i grew up in carroll gardens which is disney world now it's like super bougie and i don't live there anymore but I remember growing up and looking outside of the window it was kind of one of those neighborhoods that was really like a small town. Like it was an Italian, mostly like Italian, like Puerto Rican neighborhood. And people would know all your business and like, you know, it was just crazy, but fun in that way. I just remember looking out the window being like, wow, imagining perhaps in like a childlike way that everyone's home was like this. Like everyone yeah. lived on a street in Brooklyn. It just felt so you know, integrally, like where I, where I feel like I'm from, like where I'm, I was rooted that I think that's what hasn't changed for me, I guess, is that feeling of, well, so much of the, 
so many people move and so many of the things that I used to do have now gone. I don't know. It's just like a place where I've always, I love the independence I feel like I have. And I, I think that that hasn't changed. I mean, how about you? You said you grew up a lot. Like what's that, what's that story? Why'd you grow up a lot and where'd you live? I mean, where did I not live? I, I mean, basically my parents moved a lot for work that's just like a, a, a concise summary they were both like finishing some degree of school when I was small and then my sister was born and like their jobs just just took them around so I was born in Washington DC um, and then I've lived in various kind of like city suburb areas of New Jersey Pennsylvania and briefly in the UK so I never, I've actually lived in New York longer than I ever lived anywhere else, which is really strange at this point. Like I'm finally developing the sense that you're describing of like knowing where I am when I'm downtown, for example, like always feeling secure. Other than that, uh, no place ever really felt like home to me because either I just hadn't been there long enough to even like claim it in any type of way. Like people would always ask me where I was from or I, I reached a point I think where I, like stopped myself from becoming attached to places because I had like a feeling that I would leave Mm. or I or I knew that I would like in not that long and it just wasn't worth it so I in many ways can't relate to that but it is certainly the only place that I've ever returned to my whole life at like different even like physical sizes of myself is is my mom's mother's house um and and the town where she lives and like that has definitely been going back there and, and and remembering like oh I was here when I was in, in kindergarten and now I'm here and I'm 25 is f- like felt crazy to me because there's no other place like even just like comparing the memories of like scale and like everything that you notice w- when you're a kid and not considering that places often don't change that much yeah. that is something that I never have anywhere else because I don't have a place like that so that's a place but where th- that's like the one sort of home base that has been consistent that you like return yeah back it's to. You know, like and it gives me this false sense that like the whole world is changing as much as i'm changing which hmm. obviously it's not but like going there like grounds that and being like no everything's the same and time is moving really fast <laughs> <laughs> time is moving so fucking fast yeah i mean that i yeah so i i guess we kind of have pretty opposite experiences in terms of like I left the house that I grew up the uh, studio apartment that I grew up in (laughs) yeah when I was 18 so it's just kind of like there's pros and cons to that and you know growing up in New York of a certain like class background like middle class you know space is such a commodity and if you don't own your own home it's kind of like I've always wanted to like write about or think about like how growing up in a really small apartment like shaped my ideas about myself about like privacy about like my relationships with people like intimacy because so many new york kids grow up in these tiny spaces in such close proximity to everything like the street like your mom like your siblings and i don't know i guess i don't need that much space to be happy (laughs) because i've just grown up without it for most of my life it's kind of crazy. That's why I always had this like That's su- definitely a good these thing. suburban like fantasies. It's like as much as I'm like Brooklyn till I die, like fuck everywhere else. Like I often growing up used to be like, wow, having your own room is like so cool. Like the mall, these kind of like fantasies of like 
schools with like green spaces oh and like outdoor debunk all of that. outdoor lunch like i don't know it was all cal outdoor i guess california lunch. like yeah. california schools that were like in the media in the 90s at the time and i was like it's the mall that's and actually so true i feel like what people what like new york kids imagine as suburbia is actually just california i think so that, it's like, like everyone's outside not, all the time that's not going on in new jersey all that stuff so for Let's think about, okay, fast forward to what you're doing now. You are now getting a PhD. So without explaining necessarily the specifics of your project, since that might take too long than we have, I can assure everyone listening that it's fascinating. Um, I think that we can safely say that based on what you're studying, that you have sustained a lifelong interest in the way people interact with brands and vice versa the way brands interact with people. So could you t just tell us a little about like when this all began? I mean, this is a theme which comes up a lot like in our show, I feel like, and it's just everything that we talk about. But where did this, in I mean, yeah, where did this interest begin? Hmm. I, again, it starts at childhood for sure. Well, thank you for, thank you for that question, first of all. You're welcome. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess I could, before saying where it came from, I could start by, I guess, talking about what I'm doing. So I've been in school for like five years at NYU, which is crazy. It's like I'm an old head now, but I'm studying anthropology, which is, I guess, most broadly the study of like people and culture at all different time depths. So you have archaeologists and biological anthropologists who are studying sort of bone and like DNA fragments and like shards of pottery from different civilizations across the world to people like me who are studying sort of living populations and how people interact with each other and you know create meaning from their lives so I guess growing up I've always the one sort of thing that's like giving me most meaning sh shaping who I am is media and brands for sure I remember growing up I remember there's this one Folgers commercial where that was like super, I don't know, like suburban house, like warm and the and the and Chris, there was some Christmas shit going on and like <laughs> and drinking coffee and it was just like I got this like rush. I remember feeling like smackling my body, this like this rush of like dopamine in my body and being like, wow, Folgers, like I want to be in the Folgers ad. Coming all my like suburban nostalgia, also I don't know, there's just something about the ad to me that was very compelling. And mind you, I'm like five. So when we go to the grocery store the next day with my mom, I'm like insisting that she buy Folgers because this commercial had such an impact on me. And my mom recounts like and laughs that I was such a like materialistic kid. Like growing up, I'd request like Clorox, like very specific brands oh of like God. not child friendly Hilarious. products, not like. I don't know, Barbies, but like, can we get this brand of coffee that I wasn't even drinking? Just because I was always watching the ads. And then as I got older, I became more and more interested about like who was making the, the media. And that came later on. But definitely I was called like a quote unquote fashion plate as a child. I was very into like clothes and like brands, you know, cap consumer capitalism Same. was like deeply like <laughs> rushing in my veins i was like bye more i like wanted a credit card i remember i'd ask my mom like can i have a credit card please like there are things i want that you're not getting me um so yeah capitalism was running through my veins um sadly for better or worse um and i know that you kind of relate 
to this too in terms of being a brand. I feel like I want to ask you about your perspective and then we can get back to like okay, our I mutual s- I still interests. want you to explain how this relates to your PhD. I definitely. So don't try and duck the question. I definitely um, will in time. I mean, I feel the same in many ways. Like, I mean, growing up in the suburbs, I think that a major difference is that in the suburbs, there is no... Um, like real public space or like infrastructure or architecture to create like identity or like physical culture for people outside of shopping. Like Mm -hmm. the only, the only thing that makes a place besides like residential areas is the mall, especially in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, like in suburbs like that, like there, that is, that is like the city ultimately. Like, and so well, yeah, to, to quote Naomi Klein, no unmarked space. So, like, whenever you're in a space that you're, like, spending time or hanging out, you're in a space which is, like, occupied by stores. And because it's a mall, these are not probably, like, mom-and-pop shops. They're, like, franchises or, like, you know, chains. And so I spent a lot of time in malls, and I loved malls my entire life. Like, just love, love, love them. And I built kind of, like, my ontology of understanding the world and who people are was based on, like, what they had from the mall like that was how I that was like how I built meaning out of who people were so even as a kid like I just noticed all the stuff I mean I was the same as you I was very very clued into brands and I mean that was like the only clue that I had Hmm. so I feel like mall mall culture and mall time malls as as physical spaces like had a huge impact on me and I feel like that is a lot of a lot of where my interests came from. And, and I mean, I, I think that both of us are really interested in how um, people build their identities in relationships to, to these like branded ideas. And like, that's also why we wanted to figure out like who was creating those branded ideas and what their motives were. And that's something that we're still both exploring like in our work. Um, but yeah, I mean, almost everything that I do now ties back to that in some way, like, which is really weird because I wouldn't I wouldn't pick that out as, as like the formative experience I'd want to share, like being <laughs> at Claire's. But I was going to say, what was mall time? What did that consist of? Like, What was the ritual? Well, I mean, OK, well, f- first of all, my parents don't give a shit about any of that stuff. And so they never wanted to go to the mall and they never really took me there. Mall time was more like going with other people's parents or like going with friends. Like once I was old enough to actually go out by myself, it was like an enclosed space to spend time. So, I mean, just in the way that, you know, in New York, you might have met up in like downtown Brooklyn or like Union Square and hung out like there was no public space to hang out. So you just meet up at the mall and then where you hung out or like what you did while you were there was kind of like your way of signaling like what you're interested in and who you were. So and this was at a time when malls were, I would say, like more locally specific, like there were more like smaller franchise chains and malls were I mean, all the malls that I went to as a kid, like the the first most important one was called Park City Center in Lancaster, Pennsylvania is completely different now than it was then. I mean, I haven't been, but I've looked at the online directory and I'm sure it's like <laughs> an app. Yeah, just check in. <laughs> I'm sure it's like an Apple store and like a Sephora and stuff, mm. but it was, you know, more like small scare quote urban retailers selling like sneakers, like clubwear, um, DVDs, jewelry, like stuff like that. I mean, more like da- like Fulton Mall kind of vibe. Um, and so that time, I mean, 
that was just like how I learned things. Like there wasn't a way, I mean, also like before the internet, like that was how I learned about stuff in the world was like being there, like seeing people just, just like observing. What so. was, what were your spots? What were your mall spots? Well, there was like a big staircase and people would sit on the staircase or like escalators um, hang out by the food, Auntie Anne's, you know, stuff like that. Auntie I mean, Anne's, I feel yeah. like I have this this problem where all the malls I've been to, like, bl- that my memories of them blend into each other, and now I'm not sure which thing is at which mall. But I definitely, like, I mean, I spend so much time in places like that that I would notice, I would, like, notice the turnover of product. Like, when, <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> because you would see, I mean, if you were there every weekend, like, you would see things, like, new things come in it's and be like restocked. Like, it, it was, like, a way, it was, like, a part of the chronology of your life is like mm. of like seasonal change measuring like new stuff that. coming in yeah that's crazy um back to you oh god um commerce okay kid of consumer capitalism for sure yeah i guess like i guess it was in high school where i started becoming really interested in wanting to know like more behind the scenes perspective of who was creating mass media like i knew there had to be conversations going on about like how brands how video directors how advertising agencies were thinking about the people that they were addressing like i just knew i didn't i didn't know specifically like what it was but i knew there had to be people involved in the business so i got in high school i got super interested in studying like the the like music videos and I did my senior thesis project on <clears throat> on hip hop music videos, and I did all this research about like who the directors were and like what their like sort of industrial practices were, and like a kind of argument was trying to understand why I was seeing certain what I consider like racialized themes in hip hop music videos. Like why were certain images of black and brown people considered popular? Who were the people behind the scenes making those decisions and producing this image, images about people? Um, And can we kind of trace a historical lineage to how racial ideas through media have been created by looking at the music video? So my thing was I went back to like blackface minstrelsy, which I don't even know how I started getting interested in that, but learning about how this form of media, um, it entertainment, it was like the first form of American popular culture. And it was like popular for like 80 years. And like, we don't really learn about it in school. So in high school, I was like, why the fuck did I have, I haven't learned about the, the foundation of American theater, music, mass culture being all about sort of the consumption of race and racial difference and like, racial parody like yeah plantation and slavery nostalgia like different european immigrant groups kind of becoming american through participating in this kind of farcical representation of blackness what they thought to be blackness and americanness at the same time it just seemed so like it blew my mind and i tried to i mean one of my professors called this an ahistorical like trajectory but i don't think it is i think like everything's trajectory everything is connected shit isn't linear um so yeah i just got super interested in that and then continued that interest in college and i don't know i can keep going on and on about what i'm doing now i mean i worked at red bull for a year in, in marketing i really wanted to understand again that behind the scenes of how myths of brands are built yeah, I knew people were making these decisions, so I was, like, super interested in kind of getting firsthand experience in that. But also in college, developed just very practically an interest in 
how race is part of how products are sold and how people as products are sold by brands, by the whole industry infrastructure of marketing and advertising. So just through a Google search, honestly, and my se- my junior year, because I needed to find a job and I wanted to figure out how I could apply my interest in media and race to something that could help me pay my student loans off. And I found this entire industry called multicultural marketing in the United States that is an industry premised on targeting different racial groups with different types of marketing campaigns. Um, and the history of it, I won't get it so far into, but I got super fascinated to learn about the role that like racial segregation as like a political and social reality has shaped media and how brands think about who their consumers are. So that's what my research is about now, trying to understand the business of multicultural marketing, like how it's come to be, what the, uh, I don't know, what the practices, the struggles, the triumphs of the people who work in the industry, why they find their work meaningful, and ultimately like how it is that ideas about what it means to be American and what it means to be considered racialized, I guess, in the United States, how all of that become products. Because at the end of the day, you know, ideas about people and populations are constantly being measured and put on PowerPoints and being bought and sold. If it's not through big data, just through research, you have Nielsen, you have all these companies that are saying, uh, that are analyzing and kind of coming up and selling social theories about people's behavior. And stereotypes. And stereotypes, ultimately. So that's what I'm researching now. And books coming out, you know, Hopefully, 2020 is when my money runs out. So that's really basically when the dissertation has to be done. But it's been super cool, and I enjoy it. And I know that you, we share so many complementary interests and our desires to kind of pick apart and analyze the role that, like, consumer culture has in everyday life. And you, I've learned so much from you. We share so many interests. I learned so much about you, about branding. And you write a lot about that when it comes to like sneaker culture, like you're an art writer as well. So I want to learn more about how you got into your interests in studying these kinds of things and what you think the stakes are in understanding how consumption Ooh, shapes us. The stakes. The stakes. Um, well... Thank you for sharing. That was so eloquent and, and interesting. Oh Even though I already know all the stuff about you, I love hearing you talk about it. Love you. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I think that kind of like going back to what we were just talking about, it was evident to me from the very beginning of me being aware of myself in the world that consumption and the, con- and the choice to consume different brands or the inability to consume certain brands was like potentially the biggest factor in like marking and shaping someone's identity today today meaning like within our lifetimes which have been very short so that is some that is something that I've been like I guess like grappling with or thinking about or like being aware of my like my entire life and I do well I'm, I'm trying to think how to how to best answer this so like in this, in the question that you that we had had talked about discussing, you had asked me like how I got into sneakers, and I think that that's a good way to explain like how this whole how all of my interests like managed to converge. Like, I didn't really get into them in the sense that I was just like, I was just in the right place at the right time because I think that for people growing up in the kind of places that I grew up at the time that I grew up in the '90s, sneaker culture was growing and becoming really important. And it was just another, it was another like brand identity 
you know, mechanism. And it was something that I observed very much like at the mall, in school, on the street, just like what, how sneakers signaled certain things about people to each other and how they also like, I'm, I'm not trying to sugarcoat this. Obviously there's a, there's a lot of like stupid shit involved, but how they also, how consumption of, of stuff like that built community because it gave people a way to understand and relate to each other. And this is like something which is obviously very different now because of the internet and apps, but like even just the physical experience of going and like waiting in line for a drop at foot action or like champs or a store like that. Uh, Jimmy jazz, like, doing that thing and being in that place with other people who cared about that and then also like you know walking down the street and seeing someone with a certain pair on like knowing that you both know what that is like it was just it was just a way of like under of like understanding and perceiving other people like and so that was something that I just grew up around and I've always loved I've always in particular loved shoes like when I was a kid I used to make shoes out of paper <laughs> and try and sell them to my mom what? Yeah, I, I I like had a dream of being a shoe designer. But, that um, is amazing. So I've always I've also always been really interested. I, I don't like saying fashion because it's not really the fashion industry. Like I d- didn't have much exposure to the fashion in- to the fashion industry proper as a child, but like in style, how people style themselves, that's always has always been something that I cared a lot about. And so I think that like observing how sneakers basically function as their own kind of luxury item and. This is also, like, before streetwear was, like, a category necessarily. Like, I feel like sneakers get lumped into the streetwear category, which, like, I guess now makes sense. But a lot of the marketing and, like, decimation and uh, just kind of selling practices that we now associate with streetwear brands were started first with sneakers in the 80s, like Jordan's. So it really came more from that than from anything else. But I... So I noticed how these things kind of became their own kind of luxury object and like what luxury meant in terms of like a scarcity that was decoupled from necessarily like an actual material lack. Like sneakers are not valuable in the sense of their materials. Like it was more, it it was like the social valence of the idea of what it was combined with the limited number that the brand intentionally provided so I, I like I noticed all these things and then, you know, I've been in, in, in situations in my life in very different social environments where there were very different kinds of luxury were valued. And like I went to an Ivy League school. I, for lack of a better way of explaining, it was around a lot of rich people who had different kinds of, of, of consumption practices who cared about different kinds of brands. I also studied studio art and I studied art history and then I worked in the art world for the f- for my first five years out of college and noted and like was around this other thing being sold in many of the same terms that something like a shoe would be sold you know and so it was through like it it, it 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 was through being in all of these overlapping worlds which like even though they do overlap semantically d- are not often related to each other like in the way that we understand our world or like in the way that pop culture is separated from like avant culture like fine art versus kind of like high and low vernacular creative output i mean obviously the high and low conversation is is like an old and like possibly tired one but i did think that i think that all cultural phenomena this is an an opinion that i that we definitely share like are is worthy of consideration and that nothing is like more necessarily advanced quote than anything else but i have just been 
interested my like my whole life in how one produces the idea of luxury and like what that means especially now in a time where like nothing is really that scarce like maybe certain things like gold you know like these these standards of like what it means to have a lack of something but in like a mass-produced you know late capitalism world like global capitalism world what does it mean in like the developed world to consume something that's scarce like when nothing is really scarce for i mean yeah so that's how (laughs) that's how the interest started that was such a roundabout way of answering it but i think that all these things are much more similar than we think i know you've written you you wrote an amazing article was it last year in grailed was that yeah it was actually it came out exactly a year ago in april hey, of 2018. can you talk about what that article was about um that article was basically about the drop like as a way of releasing material meaning like a one-time release of a small amount of some product and it was basically like i mean in, in a way it's kind of a tired topic because it's like drops have been around for a long time and now they're like totally commonplace like why write about it now but it was more just tracing like how drops started why they work so well because they make something like they make something like hard to get basically like i mean a very simple like supply and demand equation and then how because there's so much of everything and like branding has become so mass and banal and like the the massness of of a lot of companies has ended up like fucking up their value how all these big companies are trying are basically trying to like imitate the drop model as if they were like a small boutique or like Mm. a grassroots company. So it, it it was kind of like just witnessing like the full, I mean, even in my lifetime, like the full circleness of like quote streetwear as a concept, like starting with like actually small stores that had limited runs of things and that relied on a very certain community to going to like Nike or Adidas, like making tiny drops of like capsule things in a way, which is like uh, totally artificial so just kind of mapping that and now of course like every brand in the world wants to have drops like I work in advertising now and I and I hear this all the time and like a lot of if I ever do an interview or something people are always like why did brands want to use the drop like who's doing this now and why and it's like everybody because it's like the simplest way to make something desirable I mean it it couldn't yeah like it it couldn't be a more obvious strategy (laughs) yeah uh, yeah, cough gimmicks. So <laughs> I wonder what's going to happen with the rest of, of streetwear. Anyway, I'm not answering that. The future of streetwear. The future of streetwear. Um, I, I just thought of a question that I really want to ask you. What was your first the pair of sneakers that you bought and like cherished and waited maybe online for? Waited online? Hmm. I remember the first I remember the first pair I got and cherished. I honestly don't remember the first pair that I like waited online for. But the first pair that I ever got and cherished I really wanted Adidas Superstars when I was probably like seven and for some reason like at the mall near my house they just weren't like easy to get like how do they look they might um the Superstars are the shell toe Adidas with the three stripes so for some reason they just weren't available like at the mall near my house I'm sure they were available at another mall further (laughs) But because of that, there was a Payless, and I ended up getting the four-stripe, like, knockoff one. Hey, come through. Um, which was fine for me at the time. But, like, I definitely thought a lot about, like, even at that time, like, why Payless made a four-stripe version of the shoe. And then I remember later, like, the, the, the lawsuit that followed when Adidas sued Payless. 
but I really, those shoes were like really awesome at that time. I actually don't wear Adidas anymore and I don't really like it, but at that particular moment, that was like all I wanted. And I wanted the matching like rip away pants. <laughs> I did not play sports. Ready. Is, Black is, and white. Wondering. Um, I guess. Yeah. Like I just wanted the whole, like the shoes, the pants, the jacket. I, I had the jacket also. And it was like a prize. Like actually, a B girl basically. <laughs> pretty much. My sister has inherited my first Adidas track jacket and she still wears it, which is pretty funny. Oh, it's that's like literally girl. 20 years old. Wow. And it still looks great. Um, so what Enough else is about there? me. What else um, is there? Makes me think. So, I have another que- another New York question for you. If you oh. could bring something back from your childhood, a New York thing that is not here anymore, what would it be? Mm. Shit. The first, you know, the first thing I thought of is there's this ride at Coney Island that used to be really amazing called the Polar Express. That w- I'm not one for thrills or roller coasters or even say, I'm riding a bike fast or even like learning how to drive. Like I'd rather just have my feet on the ground at all times. It just like to bring it back to Brooklyn, why I love living here, love li- living in New York City, just the capacity to just walk. Just I mean, yeah. I have the privilege of being able to do so. Anyway. Polar Express, just sweet nostalgic memories of this ride that kind of just went in circles, but just had hot 97 DJs. (laughs) Oh my God. Why do I not know about this? Amazing. It was fucking amazing. They had like different like dance hall moments, different like hip hop moments. Like it was great. That was like the best ride in Coney Island. And I don't think it exists anymore because that's sad so that's the first thing i, I mean i'm wow. sure there's there's lots of other things i could think of but as soon as you said thing from my childhood that's a ride i would definitely love to go on now i feel like a lot of people would love to go on that now yeah i'm like what so the fuck happened to the polar express maybe we can like file this request somewhere make a change.org petition <laughs> bring polar express back but no people i need to find some maybe there's some like youtube footage of it or something i can like relive relive the past i mean we're just we've been talking a lot about our childhoods which i think i've always i'm always fascinated by seeing footage of like my friends as kids or pictures of them because seeing lots of me because it's like you can we we are kind of set in who we are that's my sort of theory so early like we change of course but i think our core is present pretty early and i've always been curious because i feel like if we would also have been friends as kids. Definitely. What I wanted, I want to get know, the Clorox mom. <laughs> I want to get like, the Folgers only. I want to know like who you were at 10 and maybe like who the 10 year old Isabel, like what would she think of you now? Wow. Um, I mean, it's kind of a hard question to answer just because of like, of the nature of memory itself and how like our, our memories are so distorted and like right. constantly being updated to make sense with the present. So that this would probably be a better question for my mom. But I, I mean, I would say that honestly, I mean, as I said before, I've, I have lived and, and been in a lot of very, very, very different situations in my life, like social situations, environments, because I moved a lot. So I've, just seen a lot but I think that there's a lot of fundamentals about me that haven't really changed and 
one of them is that I'm a nerd and I love reading and I've always been like that. And as a kid, you know, b- uh, living in places that I didn't find particularly like stimulating or like not having a lot of freedom because when you're in the suburbs, you can't do anything as a child. Like you can't go outside by yourself. My whole world was like reading and and, and music. And that was, I like lived in a fantasy that was my music and my books for probably like 10 years. So that. That is is something that I still feel is true for me. I mean, obviously, I now I like love being in New York and I love a lot of things about my environment, but I rec- I retreat often to like kind of an imaginary world like that. And I think I've always been that way. I hate sports. I've always I mean, I don't hate them in theory, but I don't like playing them and I'm not a competitive person and I'm still not. <laughs> so that so stayed the same, same, but I mean, I was very shy at that age and I felt very um I felt very like um, conf- kind of like puzzled and confused by the social systems that I was placed in like even something as simple as like gender and the patriarchy like I was confused about my role as a female and I wasn't really interested in a lot of the shit that it seemed that I was supposed to be doing and, and that was really hard for me and like I think that the that the 10 year old me would be happy to see me now having like stopped caring and like m- just not given basically not been it not been too influenced by a lot of the things that I was like scared of being influenced by but um something that I was I mean this is kind of sad but like as far as like giving yourself advice like part of this question when you sent it to me was like what would you what advice would you like give yourself as a kid and I think that I mean of course like the the really cliche answer would be like you can't please everyone. So like you should just do what you want because there will always be someone who has a problem with like whatever the fuck you're doing. So you might as well just like throw that like out the window like from the jump. But I I think that honestly, like as I think that growing up as a girl and like filling a lot of the identity categories that we do like is very, very, very hard. And I'm not sure if I could have given myself advice that would have made it easier or different. Like it was just like, honestly harrowing. I'm not sure that it would be different. Like, I don't even know if I could do it again now and like do a better job. Like, I just think it was that it is like a, like, like we live in like a toxic social condition. And it's something that I think about like now being older, like if I like had a daughter, like what would I like tell her about like being a teenage girl? I don't fucking know. Like, I don't know what you could possibly do to like prepare someone to go through that bullshit. So that's kind of, I guess like a a, m- a more sad note, but it, it's just like you have to have such faith in like the autonomy of your own mind and like such purpose of belief to basically like def- like fend off all the like stupid ass bullshit ab- about how you need to change and how you should ultimately like hate yourself that mm-hmm. women experience all day all the fucking time. So how one would do that differently? I'm just glad it's over. Like. People are always like, oh, I don't want to get old. I fucking love not being like a 21-year-old girl. Thank God. The, the yeah. older I get, I'm like, sweet. Stop fucking telling me what to do. <laughs> this is me. Leave me the fuck alone. Um, so, yeah. Can you answer now? Can you answer <laughs> Ten-year-old now? Marcel. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, it's so, it's so like, I guess, sweet hearing you talk about yourself at that age because I was very similar. Like, definitely like not into sports definitely not competitive in that sense 
and also a huge nerd and teacher's pet and like researcher from like a very young age. Oh like God, I, same. I, my mom has recently just given us all this archive that she's collected from basically anything we've ever written. Cause my mom is very like historian like, and she's all organized, whatever. Anyway, she gave it to me and I just saw all these research reports I was doing at a young age, like for my third, one of my third grade reports, it just says, AIDS, a report by Marcel Rosa Salas. I can't. <laughs> I was like, what the <laughs> fuck was I thinking writing a report about AIDS in third grade? I was like, okay. Um, so yeah, that core, I don't think, always curious and questioning authority. I got me in trouble in school growing up. I remember I was thrown out of my fifth grade classroom for like correcting the teacher, which I mean, that's wow, kind of, that's kind of annoying. Hero. That's kind of annoying, honestly, and I was probably being a smart ass, but that's one thing my mom I mean, for better or worse, I guess on her end, always encouraged. For me and my sisters, like, question her or question authority and don't be afraid to kind of be skeptical or, like, be skeptical always. So I think that a healthy dose of that and curiosity and wanting to um, create things in the world that I wanted to to see or read that's one of the other things my mom did early on was encourage us to think about books that we wanted to read that we didn't think were written yet and like start planning them so when she would rehearse oh, dance she'd be like okay like write about this topic or research that or what is a book that you want to write that you don't think has been written like kind of writing book proposals at a young age I, she was just like had all these exercises for us to do or like kumon which was torture you know? i hear about this from so many people can you tell me what kumon, kumon is, is like, fucking crazy oh yeah so basically it's like god it's like a sort of school after school sort of boot camp where you do different you could do reading and math and you do just for my memory it was like different workbooks that were but they were all timed and so you would have homework that you would do and then you oh go god. into the kumon facility and then i guess do all these timed assessments and then these teachers would grade you and apparently there was a whole other level to it. There was like international Kumon competitions. Like it was a thing what? where people would speed read, like speed do. It was all about speed and efficiency and like thinking, which is so scary to kind of think about now. But it's still a thing. And if you notice their branding, it's like of, of a little sad kid. Have you ever seen? No. It's like Kumon. If you look up Kumon, it's like there's an O and the little kid is like frowning. Wow, I don't think we had that wherever I was living. It's crazy. I think it's like I think it's like a global thing. But yeah, ten year old me was still a nerd. I think similarly to you, not I would tell her little rotund Marcel to not be so yeah similarly like ple people pleasing and like external validation. I feel like that's something that in a consumer culture in a sort of broader social environment where where you're a product yeah where we are a product where you know we're sort of primed to feel inadequate where um images of of what it means to have a womanly body or just like body image stuff um we're kind of shaped as you said to kind of hate ourselves or not think that we're enough and that buying things or consuming they're participating in certain cultures consumer cultures obviously it's complicated but it does the media industry behind that sort of is driven by us feeling inadequate 
And I feel like I'm just now starting to finally believe in my bones that like I'm enough just as I am. And it took me a long time. I mean, I've always been confident and I've always like done shit that I wanted to do and I haven't let that stop me. But this, you know, insidious feeling of inadequacy, but definitely letting Marcel know that like you're already okay as you are. Like you don't need to do anything else. You're just as as is out of the womb. You are whole and complete. And I think that's given that believing that has given me a lot of comfort and strength over the past few years yeah that's that's amazing I mean I feel like you and I are always like struggling with the dissonance of being like I'm enough and then being like let's get our belly button pierced you know like (laughs) I mean and obviously like and like not feeling also not beating yourself up for like having that kind of dissonance in your mind like being like it's okay to to feel that way I mean I feel like if I had one wish if I could combine all the time I spent in my life, all the hours straightening my hair and just get that time back. Mm, same. Like, think about what, like I could have like written a fucking book in that time. I could have done so like so much in that Days. time. Like literally anything else that I could have been doing in that time. I mean, I was super into straightening my hair too in high school. Yeah, that was high school, middle school, like literally hours every single day. Like just like all that stuff. Like, that's what I wish. I mean, I'm I'm not saying that I regret it because I think that I learned a lot about, I think I learned a lot from doing that. But I wish that if I could like impart advice on someone, it would be like, <laughs> Don't waste time, time is money. Right. Um. Yeah. Well, I feel like we should probably wrap this up. And I'm thinking that for a final question, I mean, I don't know, like, do you want to talk about our perfect job in a pre-internet world or what about being grown up is hard and what is easy? Oh, well. hmm. Any of those things? Both of those things sound super interesting. Um, I wanted to, you know what I actually wanted to hear? I wanted to g- end, end this with musical recommendations. Oh my God. Cause I feel like, or not, I mean, not recommendations. That sounds so like weird. Um, insight into that part of our lives because i think i have a very different relationship to music in general than most people i mean that sounds weird in the sense that i don't really listen to music that much i remember i said that to a person recently and they looked at me like i was a fucking freak even though i grew up in a very artistic household and like i sing and i like grew up playing like violin for like 10 years you listen to like i had a question for you which was what is your I guess what would be your theme song? Like what if you had to say like your favorite song of all time, genre, whatever, how you answer that. I'm just curious to hear that from you. Ooh. Um, well, I'm kind of the opposite of you in the sense that I, I listen to music. I mean, I'm actually worried about my ears. Mm. Um, <laughs> my grandmother has tinnitus and like can't listen to any loud noises. What I'm, is that? I'm, it's like, I'm, I'm going to butcher this. It's something that happens from listening to too many loud noises where you have like a constant ringing inside your ears and people who use headphones all the time or like listen to really loud music can sometimes get it or like rock stars. I don't, I'm actually really curious what she was doing to get it. But (laughs) anyway, I listen to music all the time. Like I, I basically can't do anything without music on. I can't walk. I mean, my like de-stress activity is, is just walking with my headphones. Like 
I'm the kind of person who will pause a song at a red light, so I don't like miss any of the songs oh, while I'm standing still. Like, <laughs> so quite different. If I leave my headphones at home, I will buy a new pair, so I don't have to go through the day without them. Wow. Like that, yeah, that's where I'm at. I mean, I don't have a favorite song. I grew up listening to hip hop and. I mean, I always tell people in jest that, like, I don't like any other music that's not hip-hop. That's not entirely true. I like reggaeton (laughs) and (laughs) dancehall and, like, other, I would say, like, you know, jazz, like, hip-hop-affiliated genres. Um, But I... If I think of a... if I think of a song that like is a song that puts me in a great mood and that I think of as like a mantra song, when I was in high school, I used to love Papoose. <laughs> and he has a song from Nasarima Dream called What Makes Me Me. And it's basically like a, it's like a, just like a really like high energy, like hilarious song about kind of like being yourself, but just like him talking shit and like bragging. But it actually has a lot of like jewels of wisdom in it. And I remember hearing it for the first time at, like, in someone's... Sorry about the sirens. Hearing it for the first time in someone's basement at a party and, and being like, I need to burn to download this song and burn it onto its own CD and listen to it like every single <laughs> no. day. And, and I still listen to it. It's, it's not on... I don't know if it's on Spotify. It's not on Apple Music, but it's definitely on YouTube. Nasarima Dream. Yeah, and that's the album. And it... Um, He's also like starts it by being like 2007 this year is mine which is like perfect for me listening to it now because that was like such an important like adolescent year 2007 so I'm like this song is forever suspended in like my teenagehood Dude, but I, that's my answer I love that the album was too called Nastream of Dream because there's an anthropology there's like this famous like article about like the Nasarim. It was like a, a famous article in the sense that it kind of denaturalized for the first time like Americanness as like the sort of cultural norm of anthropology so this writer researcher jesus what Sorry. is happening There's um, a lot of here. um this this anthropologist wrote this like analysis of like the nasarima as just describing i don't know the, our bathroom like the typical sort of american bathroom and different fixtures in this very detached sort of seemingly objective way and the entire time it's like Americans. It's a concept album. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, wow, he's tapped, he's you, tapped you into may that. You not have it as such. He's tapped in. Okay, what's your, what's your, um, Marcel oh song? God. So yeah, my music practices are weird in the sense that I will. I mean, I think the only time I really listen to music is at the gym when, like, when I'm exercising. And right now, I just like constantly just listening to like only Afrobeat or like dance hall music <laughs> to exercise. Music. DJ Perez from Kenya, he's amazing. Um, this is not a sponsored post. That's just what I listen to in the gym. But I also, since I grew up singing and, um, took, like, trained as a singer in high school and in college, um, and I've always had a love for, like, R&B and the roots of that, which is, like, gospel, American, like, black American, like, gospel music, I sort of, my theory is that that's kind of, like, the foundation of, of a lot of the music that we hear today, like, R&B, hip hop, like so many of the samples are actually coming from like gospel songs and just like the vocal like virtuosity and technique of gospel singers, like the fact that they are so, they're trained like opera singers because they've been singing since they were little, like training very rigorously in music and just physically their diaphragms and their breathing capacity is able to produce, to me, some of the most like beautiful like vocal. yeah everything so my favorite group is the clark sisters they're amazing they're a group of sisters from detroit 
Lifetime, I just found out, is actually making a biopic or biopic, oh whatever, God. out of them. And I, when I saw it, like, dropped my phone. I was like, holy shit. They're, like, it's being produced, I think, by Queen Latifah, Mary J. Blige, and someone else. Missy Elliott. Wow. Missy Elliott. But they're an amazing group. And I remember the first song I heard from them was a performance that they did at the Stellar Awards, which is basically, like, the gospel music, like, Grammys, called Blessed and Highly Favored. <laughs> that song i had never heard it has this like mix of extremely like melancholy like minor harmonies like super like dissonant and like extremely interesting chords with this like very hopeful note like it, it like progresses in this like major key that's just like okay life is hard we go through really hard things but just like be grateful for like what you have and the the lyrics are like that but the sort of melody kind of goes like that and karen clark sheard is just in my opinion fight me if you don't agree one the most amazing singer in the world today i will like go to bat for that and i have like lots of empirical evidence to prove my theory I believe that so Bless and Highly Favored, Clark Sisters, look up, y'all, the Stellar Awards performance because that's just, like, American music right there. Beautiful. Um, so that's music to me. I could listen to Bless and Highly Favored, like, 10 million times, but typically I'm listening to DJ Perez Afrobeat. Yeah, I feel like that for you is, like, my, my like, soul music is, like, Zion e. Lennox or, like, <laughs> anything Looney Tunes, but, like, especially, like, I love all their harmonies and the way they sing like i'm not trying to compare them to, to the clark sisters but it's like i can just never get enough of listening to them like no matter how many times i listen like and their songs are all like a little bit similar but it's like whatever the fuck they're putting in that give me more i just want to keep <laughs> I need listening it. to everything i love i love it oh. um wow oh my god so this was like this is really fun yeah i'm excited for what we are continuing to do i, I mean i hope you guys aren't bored out of your minds I'm anyone who's still listening yeah i mean you could listen we are we do this podcast for Ourselves. us in a lot of ways so you can listen or not and we welcome i i mean i'm still so like honored and blessed to know people actually hit play so yeah that's this is us in a nutshell i guess and yeah, I guess we'll be back next month with something else, which we got to figure out. Yes, so um, see you guys then. Bye. Thanks for listening. Yeah, bye.